So once again, Deuteronomy 11, 1 through 7, followed by 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 5. Hear then the word of God. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, and his signs, and his works, which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you. And the Lord completely destroyed them. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord which he did. And now we turn to Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Amen. Friends, there is in the boundless grace of our Lord Jesus Christ a remedy prescribed for pediatric unbelief. That terrible wasting disease that afflicts the souls of children. My own father's father died in 1972 of what was then called hardening of the arteries and his death wasn't unexpected after all he was 89 years old and the cardiovascular system at the age of 89 just isn't what it used to be pediatric unbelief on the other hand is the hardening of a child's heart understood to be the seat of the will and the home of the soul, a hardening of that young person's heart against Christ. 
and against the scriptures that reveal Christ to him, to us. A young man who is afflicted with pediatric unbelief will sit through 18 years or so of family worship. 18 years or so of hearing sermons in the house of God. 18 years of daily parental investment in his walk before God, and at the end of 18 years or so, have nothing to show for it. Nothing has sunk in. There comes no transformation of that young person's character because there's been no renewing of the mind. And there's been no renewing of the mind because the hardened heart is impervious to learning. It can't take nourishment. It can't digest and absorb the life-giving, life-strengthening influences of the word, the sacraments, prayer. So a child who suffers pediatric unbelief doesn't ever speak of my Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my King on her more respectful non-combative days she might speak of my parents' church or my parents' religion. Now her body may be as vibrantly healthy as any young person's, but her soul is sick unto death. Her soul needs to be revived. But for the sustaining grace of God in Christ, that young lady or young man is one skipped heartbeat away from hell. That's the genuine peril of pediatric unbelief. But thanks be to God, there is a biblical remedy for it. Christian parents who are acting early and persistently don't have to and should not lose their children to the destroyer. It's a biblical remedy that's embraced in that strong old Greek word, paideia whose meaning embraces both the nurturing and the admonition of children. Paideia. We get our word pediatric from it. And paideia encompasses the teaching that takes place when you walk by the way. And when you as families lie down and when you as families rise up and it encompasses the corrective chastening of the rod when that becomes necessary. Paideia. It's the biblical way to train children. Now does paideia, the nurture and admonition of children, does it when applied to pediatric unbelief enjoy a 100% rate of recovery? No, it doesn't. Think of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, you remember, grew up in the very same house. They are, in fact, twins. 
which means they are of exactly the same genetic material and makeup. They are raised by the very same believing parents in the very same home. They eat the very same food at the very same table. God loved the one and hated the other. The transgenerational efforts of Lois and Eunice on the one hand bore good results in the life of young Timothy. But the best motives of Eli and Samuel, on the other hand, only produced worthless sons, sons who were unfit to be the priest and the judge that their respective fathers were. Christian upbringing is no guarantee of the child's conversion. But I will tell you this with complete certainty. As a parent, I cannot offer to my children what I do not myself have. I can't offer them the help of a Redeemer that I myself have never met. Never heard. Never trusted. Today's passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 11, challenges the eyewitnesses of the power and grace of God to tell the truth about what they know, to pass it along. This is evangelism as it takes root first in the home. And there is nothing artificial, there is nothing forced about this kind of evangelism. This evangelism isn't a program. This is life as we live it. Life as Christ abundantly offers it and as we gladly receive it. It's simply telling our children the truth about what we ourselves have experienced. Beloved, there is a need today for eyewitness testimony to the boundless power and grace of God exercised in our redemption. Personal testimony. We need to talk about these things. Today's text addresses that generation of parents whose children had not themselves been around long enough to witness the redemptive wonders of the Lord God of Israel. These children hadn't been there when God first instituted the Passover in Egypt. They hadn't been there when every firstborn of Egypt who wasn't covered in the blood of the Passover lamb was slain. These young children gathered there with their parents on the plains of Moab. These young children hadn't seen the parting of the Red Sea. They hadn't seen the destruction of Pharaoh's army. They hadn't seen the appearance of the Lord God Almighty in the fire and thick darkness and cloud at Mount Sinai. The youngest of those children, anyway, wouldn't be acquainted with the provision of manna in the wilderness for 40 years. They'd have no memory of the pillar of fire and cloud that went before them. No memory of those wilderness rebels, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their being swallowed down into 
the earth for their rebellion. That younger generation would know nothing about those things if their parents didn't tell them. In this fallen world, we tend not to believe fully in things occurring or alleged to occur outside our own personal experience. We are by nature skeptics. We value the, as unassailable truth only what we ourselves have experienced, what we ourselves have found to be so. And the natural man, unredeemed, acts fraudulently himself, and so he's accustomed to being defrauded. And like we saw in Psalm 50 a little bit earlier, I, the sinner, live and think as though the rest of the world behaves as I do. It's projection. If I am a liar, I imagine you must be a liar too. So I need to experience it myself. But it's worse than that. Not only do I, the sinner, project my own faults, my own sins upon others, I also live and think as though the whole world revolves around me. That I am the judge of what is true and what is not. And if I wasn't there to see it myself, then it might as well not have happened. The drowning of an army, say, might as well not have happened. Or the swallowing up of lawless rebels in their houses into the yawning hole where the earth used to be. If I didn't see it myself, it might as well not have happened. But, you know, in actual fact, an awful lot has happened and does happen and will continue to happen without my being on hand to make personal judgments about it. On the wall of our home, there used to be a collage of family photos, one of which is a black and white Polaroid of my dad carving the Thanksgiving turkey at our home, my childhood home up in Pennsylvania. And gathered around the table in that Polaroid photo and appearing in the picture with him are four children, all my older siblings. My mom's absent from the photo only because she was on the other side of the camera. I'm absent from the photo only because sonograms were then science fiction. And my arrival was still about six weeks off at that point. I wasn't there, at least I wasn't there in the outside world. And so to me, the proof of that family Thanksgiving in 1959, the proof rests in my mom's efforts to record it. She witnessed it, and she cared enough about that moment to leave the testimony of that photo behind. That's the only way it enters into my experience. She cared enough to pass it along to the coming generations. That moment, Thanksgiving 1959, when my dad was cutting the turkey. 
The Apostle John understood the value of eyewitness testimony for instilling and strengthening faith. How does the Apostle John begin his first letter to the church? Here's how it begins. That which was from the beginning, he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This human need for validating the truth, validating the hard facts of our redemption, was exactly the same in a much earlier generation than the Apostle John's. The need to validate truth. The people of Israel were poised on the threshold of their inheritance. Moses preaches to them again, as he does so often, love the Lord your God and obey him. Cleave to him. Walk in all his statutes. There's your roadmap for success. There is your practical pathway to happiness and fulfillment and continued freedom. And he follows up that central charge to love and obey in verse 1 with the subordinate and supporting charge to consider. Consider these things God has done. Consider them. Think on them. Don't ever begin to imagine, friends, that the Eastern religions have a corner on the art of meditation. They don't. Meditation belongs to us. Belongs to God's people. It's ours as Christians. And it's not meditation on some religious fiction or fantasy or philosophy. Christian meditation isn't on uh, some airy, empty, ephemeral fable that has no relation to the hard facts and phenomena of life in the world. Iron nails driven through human flesh into a wooden cross are hard facts and phenomena. Are we the church? If we're the church, then these hard facts is what we're about. Peter was a young man when uh, he first followed the Lord Jesus Christ, but Peter didn't stay young. As an old man, steady and true through the years to Christ's apostolic charge, he writes in his second letter to the church, Second Peter, he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his glory. 
We were eyewitnesses. And so indeed had been that generation gathered on the plains of Moab, that those people who were between the ages of 40 and 60, they were eyewitnesses. The younger ones, many of them, won't remember any of those things. They're too young. They weren't in the picture at the time that they happened. I'm not speaking to them, Moses says in verse 2. I'm speaking to you parents. It's up to you as parents to speak to them. By word and deed convincing them of the truth. I speak instead to you who know it, know these things to be true, because you saw them. Consider today the paideia, Moses says. That's the very word of the Greek Septuagint here. The paideia. The paideia of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and deeds that he did over the past 40 years. Consider the nurture and admonition of Israel, that beloved son that he called out of Egypt. Let those things be the content of our meditation. Let it be the grist for the mill of our thinking. What should our minds fix upon today as we worship? And what then should engage our minds and attention as we go about our life callings, as we raise our families? as we grow up and as we grow old. What should engage our attention? It's not what I think or what you think or what someone else tells us that we ought to think. In the final analysis, as we pass from this world into that world which is to come, those things that we think, that others think, other people's opinions and so forth, those things diminish to the point of irrelevance. Consider instead what he did. Verse 3. Consider the signs and deeds that he did. And what he did. Verse 4. And what he did. Verse 5. And what he did, verse 6, for your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Verse 7, it's about what he did. That's the distinctive apologetical signature that sets Christianity apart from all of the idols of the world. It's what God has done. Let's lay our pet philosophies aside. Let's count our pet philosophies and theories, the intellectual rubbish that so many of them are, frankly. Consider instead what he did. The living and true God has acted. He's taken action to redeem a people for himself. And he acts today, and he promises to act tomorrow. And how could it be otherwise? 
This Redeemer is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's expect him then to act wondrously in our own generation. Let's expect him to act wondrously. We read in these verses of the plagues and ruin of Egypt, the destruction of the pursuing army in the Red Sea. We read of judgments executed to protect the Lord's redeemed people from threats without and threats within. They are, at a certain level, they are fantastic historical events, but they don't deteriorate into fantasy. They're not fantasy. They're wondrous. They're wonders. They're wonderful simply because they are the deeds of the God who works wonders. Now, you and I, in our generation, at this point in history, we haven't seen these things with our eyes. Nor can we, nor will we. That's the nature of the case. These things written here are historically unique. They're unrepeatable. Ours, then, is to read them, hear them, believe them, embrace them, and tell our children. This is the eyewitness testimony that was left behind for us. And that's really our first application today, to believe the biblical testimony that is sealed in many cases with the blood of the martyrs who first experienced these things, who died asserting that they were true, that they were so. Do you believe the prophets, Paul asked, of Herod Agrippa, of all people? Herod Agrippa, in his defense at Caesarea, Paul asked him, do you believe what's been written for our teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness? That's what Paul, on trial, asks Herod Agrippa. Even if Herod Agrippa, there in the book of Acts, Paul could say, I know that you believe. I know Agrippa because you investigate, you look into things, you become familiar with them. That was Paul's assertion of Herod Agrippa, of all men. Let us look into these things, these historical facts. Let us look into them as soberly and realistically as Herod Agrippa did in his day. And if we do that, if we look into them, we'll be convinced anew of the great things the Lord our God has done. A second application is to recognize that this great God and Savior has not ceased his wonderful deeds. He has not ceased. Oh, certainly the redemption that he purchased from all eternity had foreshadowed in the Exodus, that was secured once for all at the cross. It was sealed with the final word of a dying Savior. Tetelestai, he said. It is finished. 
But now that that redemption is finished, has he figured, well, my job is done? Has he withdrawn from us? Has he disappeared? Didn't the Lord Jesus before the cross say, I'm going to be sending someone. And after the cross, didn't he in fact make good on his promise and send us a comforter to testify of him in these last days? And isn't that comforter, the Holy Spirit, today walking among us, doing wonderful things? like the conversion of the lost. The glory of biblical Christianity today is that like the risen and ascended Christ himself, biblical Christianity doesn't stay put. It doesn't simply remain lifelessly wherever it's been deposited. Biblical Christianity is not like an umbrella that you leave behind somewhere. The umbrella left behind is there when you go look for it. It's exactly where you left it. But the Holy Spirit, calling the elect of every generation to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is like the yeast in the loaf. He's like the fire in the dry grass. The Holy Spirit doesn't stay put and the testimony that he inspired and left behind also reaches ahead into the generations yet to come. Christianity is not a dead or dying religion. It's growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. The slaves of Egypt didn't remain slaves. They didn't remain in Egypt forever. God led them forth to freedom and abundance. The dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't remain in the grave to seek corruption. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his own right hand. And Christianity, as we're meant to experience it, it doesn't fit neatly within the covers of a book. No, biblical Christianity has to stretch its legs. It has to raise its head. It has to raise its voice. It has to extend its arms. Biblical Christianity has to be abroad in the world. It has to walk across the miles and across the generations for the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter and John who were arrested and standing before the Sanhedrin for preaching the risen Christ, for, forbidden to speak any more of him, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the eyes of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Dear ones, let us not fall short of that same standard in our own generation for the good of the generations yet to come. 
your ears have heard the invitation. Your mind has begun processing all the wonders of God at work in the administration of his grace through history. And yes, even in these last days, as Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, builds his church, your eyes, your eyes, have seen all the great work that the Lord God has done. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you entrusted first to prophets and apostles. And you have safeguarded this word and testimony of your grace and power and love. You've safeguarded it through the ages, dark ages, hostile ages. You've kept your word that we today and generations until the end of time might know you, the only true God through Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Grant your blessing, we pray, upon us and upon our families. We pray that the transmission of this faith from grandparent to parent to grandchild on through the generations, grant that this would continue to bring great glory to you in the lives of every generation. We pray in particular for the youngest of those among us here today, that whatever they may pick up from this your word might be of profit to them, even in getting the wheels of their minds turning. Move in their tender young hearts. Feed them with grace and the power of your Holy Spirit that they might not grow up to be the same children that they were when they were born, but that they might grow up as oaks of righteousness, as pillars fashioned for a palace. Grant that they and their generation might become men and women of God, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, who can testify to their children of the great things that you have done for your glory and the good of your people. We humbly ask these things in Jesus, our Redeemer's name. Amen.